Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. We are in a new series. We're heading towards uh, Resurrection Sunday, and we are preparing uh, and thinking about, as we head towards Easter and Resurrection Sunday, what I'd like to do is take three looks at three different scenes from probably the most well-known of all Jesus' disciples, the disciple Peter. The first is the one that we just read today, where Peter promises Jesus before he's crucified, I will never betray you. The next is the scene where Peter denies Jesus three times. We'll look at that next week. And then the last will be after the resurrection when Jesus comes to Peter and restores him to his role. So that's where we're going to be going as we head into the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a difficult decision that I had to make. I was working at a car dealership. I had been there for seven years, and I had to leave that store because of economic reasons, because of the downturn. So when I left, uh, as I was preparing to leave, Donna and I were praying about where I was going to go next. And I went to this really big dealership uh, to the north, far from Atlantic City, and I went there for an interview, and a friend of mine who had just started there was very excited about it, and he called me up and said, hey, you should consider this place. And I said, okay, I will. And I went for the, after the first interview with one of the sales managers, I had a second interview with another manager. And this gentleman comes out, clean cut, a uh, guy who works out in a gym, just muscles bulging, um, with a slight southern access, accent, very, very nice gentleman. And he said, you know, I don't usually do these interviews, but I noticed something on your resume, and I wanted to ask you about it. I said, okay. He said, I see that in your past you were a minister. And he goes, and I went, yes, I was. And he says, well... This store brought me up from Tennessee so I could come up here and try to get things going in a more positive direction. And I, would, I'm a, I want you to know that I'm a church-going man, and I would love to have you on my team. And if there was ever anything about which you had questions or concerns, you know you could come straight to me. And so Donna and I took that as a sign from God, and I took the job. And after a couple of months there, I noticed a couple of different practices in that store that I kind of struggled with that I thought were unethical. And I didn't know what to do about it, so I asked a couple of the guys that I'd been working with who had been there for a long time, I said, when did we start doing this? Why do we do it this way? And they said, well, the new guy that they brought in from Tennessee, he put this in place. And I was like, oh. 
And I began to realize that this wasn't the job that I thought I was signing up for. <laughs> you ever had that happen? You're excited about something, you go towards something, you, you sign up, you're, you're all in, and then as it begins to unfold, you're like, oh, wow, this isn't what I signed up for. Perhaps it was like that for Jesus' disciples as well. When you hear the word Messiah, what do you think most people think when they hear the word Messiah? I suspect a lot of them would think of the word Messiah complex, right? What's a Messiah complex? It's when someone thinks that they are the savior of the world and they are their savior of somebody else's world. They think that they have what it takes to tell other people what to do and to fix all their problems. And in Jesus' day, there were people with Messiah complexes and the people were looking for a Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. Messiah and Christ mean exactly the same thing. They're just from two different languages. It means the one who has the oil poured over their head. Well, what does that mean? Well, in, in Israel, in ancient Israel, when someone became a king of Israel or a priest in Israel or perhaps a prophet in Israel, they would be anointed as a symbol of the Spirit of God or the power of God or the presence of God being placed upon them. But the big idea was that they were some kind of a deliverer for God's people, whether they were a deliverer by rule or whether they were a deliverer by word and message or whether they were a deliverer by ministering the presence of God in the temple. So here comes Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom. He comes what? Doing miracles. He comes preaching to huge crowds. He resists the powers that be. He resists the status quo. And his disciples see all of this. Peter, Peter sees all of this. And their imaginations are no doubt full of ideas about how Jesus was the Messiah. And they are ready to ride to victory with him. They've hitched their wagon to the Jesus train, and they were on the up and up. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey like a gentle king, and they were going to be by his side when he won. He was Messiah, and they were his trusted cabinet, his apostles. They were backing the winner. But throughout the night before he is arrested... Jesus is trying to help them to understand what is really going on. But they're struggling to get it. They knew that the coming to Jerusalem was risky, but they didn't expect at all what was about to happen. And through the Passover dinner, as they were preparing to get ready and leave the upper room, Jesus is teaching them and teaching them and teaching them about the nature of his kingdom, teaching them what the kingdom is really like, and they're struggling to understand what's happening. And as Jesus is speaking to them, he's trying to sort of correct and redirect their understanding of kingdom because they're about to find out that this isn't what they signed up for. 
Jesus' disciples probably thought that he was some kind of political messiah. And Jesus is trying to maximize the remaining time with his disciples and prepare them for what's next. They do not fully understand. And what he is telling them runs counter, it runs against or different from the expectations that they had for him and for themselves. They're thinking success. They're thinking ambition. They're thinking bravado. But Jesus' kingdom is different from that. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach Peter and the other disciples. And I want to summarize Jesus' teaching about his kingdom under three heads today. Here's the first. My kingdom is about my sacrifice, not success. Secondly, my kingdom is about humble service, not outward ambition or authority. And number three, my kingdom is about trusting me in your brokenness, not outward performance or bravado. That's what we're going to look at today. Let's start with my kingdom is about my sacrifice, not external success. Look with me at verses 14 through 23. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, Which of them it could be who was going to do this? So they are eating the Passover meal. Passover is one of the highest holy days in the entire Jewish calendar. The story is found in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Exodus. The Israelites had been enslaved to Egypt for generations. And Moses comes to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh looks at the shepherd boy, Moses, and says, who do you think you are? I'm not giving up all my free slave labor. Forget about it. Get out of here. So Moses tells Pharaoh that God is going to judge Egypt unless they let the Israelites go. And God brings a series of plague that escalate in severity upon the people of Egypt. And the final plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. God's angel of death is going to pass through the streets of the city of Egypt. He's going to enter into every one of the homes there, and every firstborn will die, including the children of Israel unless God tells them to take a lamb 
a year old, to kill the lamb, to take some of the lamb's blood and to paint it on the doorposts of their house, and then to close the door that night, to stay in their house, and to eat the lamb. Because the blood of the lamb on the door, when the angel of death is passing through the city and sees the blood of the lamb on the door, he will pass over that house and go on to the next one. And in the morning, the Egyptians open their door and there's wailing and crying and loss throughout the entire city. But among those who had the blood on their doorway, not a single firstborn was lost. Passover was the feast of eating a lamb and remembering the blood on the door and how God's judgment passed over from the Israelites. And Passover became an annual festival in the calendar of Israel ever since the days of Moses as a regular observance in the law. Now, here is Jesus, a Jewish man, observing the Passover meal with his disciples. And he takes two cups and also the bread. And he is saying that now these things have new meaning different than what they had always been for Israel. And the meaning has to do with who he, Jesus himself, is. And he goes on to say that he's not going to enjoy another glass of wine until he enters into his kingdom. And the kingdom of Jesus is going to be about the broken body of Jesus represented by the bread and the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. Jesus will be a better Passover. His kingdom is not about gaining influence and power in the world at all. It's about Jesus becoming the Passover sacrifice for his people who need forgiveness and protection from judgment. And then he will rise to enter his kingdom. Jesus goes on to tell them that he's going to be betrayed, and they're all standing around scratching their heads trying to figure out which one of them that he's talking about, and they don't know who it is, because this whole thing doesn't boot up, because they were expecting their candidate to win, not get crucified. They're expecting to be in his cabinet. They're not expecting intrigue and betrayal. This is not the kingdom that they were expecting Jesus to build. Because Jesus' kingdom is about him becoming a better Passover lamb. It's about his sacrifice before his resurrection. He's going to give his life for his people, but not as a victorious warrior king that the disciples thought. He was going to lay down his life for his people. He would become the sacrifice. Why? Because each of us need to be protected by His blood from judgment. There's not a single person who can face the most holy of gods without a sacrifice for forgiveness, just like the Israelites needed one. But God doesn't want any more lambs. He gave His only Son, Jesus. 
And Jesus became the ultimate Passover on the cross. And all who look to Him and trust in Him for mercy and forgiveness receive forever forgiveness that we cannot earn or pay back. To be part of Jesus' kingdom means to accept Him as your Passover for forgiveness before God. And unlike the Passover of the Jews, there is no further sacrifice necessary. Jesus gave His body and His blood, then He rose and He entered into His kingdom, and Jesus welcomes all who trust in Him into His eternal kingdom. Do you believe in Him? Are you in the kingdom? Jesus was telling, trying to tell Peter and the others, my kingdom is about my sacrifice for you, not outward success. It's not what you thought you signed up for. Secondly, he says, my kingdom is about humble service, not about ambition or authority. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. A dispute arose also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The next thing that happens after they finish their Passover dinner is this discussion among Jesus' disciples about which one is the greatest. They know Jesus is going to be king over his kingdom. They know he's go- that he's going to reign. So what are they thinking? Well, who's going to be Jesus' head honcho? Who's going to be his right man? Who's going to be his veep? And they're debating about among themselves about who's the most important. And Jesus is getting ready to be betrayed. He's getting ready to be arrested. He's getting ready to be tried and crucified. He knows it's coming. And his disciples are arguing about which one of them is most important to him. Jesus is in agony, and they're thinking about themselves. It's a little pathetic when you realize what's going on. And again, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus has to offer correction. He says this, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest or the newest or the least, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says that those who are important in my kingdom, the most important ones, are the ones who serve. And verse 27 is probably a reference to a part of the story that we see in another of the biographies of Jesus called the Gospel of John. You may remember the story when Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, grabbed a towel, and one by one washed each of the disciples' feet and wiped them off with a towel and said, do you know what I've done? Now you go and do the same. Jesus explains that his kingdom is not about authority. It's not about ambition. It's not about getting people to look up to you. It's about serving others in love. 
Jesus washed his disciples' feet as a symbol of service and love, and he was soon to give his life as a sacrifice, as the ultimate act of service and love. And because we all come to Jesus for forgiveness through his sacrifice, we all have to humble ourselves the same exact way, admit our wrongs, ask for mercy and forgiveness, and everyone who comes to Jesus comes as a person who needs mercy and grace. There are no Christians that are more important than other Christians. And Jesus is refining how his followers do leadership. Leaders of other kingdoms think that the people exist for them. Leaders in Christ's kingdom are to be like Christ. They exist to serve others. If you think that being a leader means that people exist to serve you, Jesus says that is not the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, leaders exist to serve others. It is completely and totally upside down. If you think that you're better than others, if you think that everyone owes you something, if you are more concerned about people showing you respect that you think you deserve, if you have to get your own way or else, that can be symptoms of a selfish and unchristlike leader. Christ-like leadership is a form of high service to other people. It's not calling the shots from above. It's not imposing your will on others. It's not making everybody agree with you. Christian leadership is not top-down. If you and I believe that others are there to serve us, you or I do not have the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is I'm here to serve others, not get them to serve me. Immaturity in Christ means that I choose to take the position of humility. When someone hurts me, I forgive. When someone offends me, I speak to them about it. When I'm misunderstood, I try to communicate and connect better. I do not think that I am better than you. I do not look down at you. I do not run you down to other people. I seek to be of service and of help to you, to the Jesus, because Jesus has helped me. If I've hurt you, I admit it and I go to you and I seek forgiveness and I seek reconciliation. To serve for the better of the other is the epitome of Christian leadership. Jesus' disciples had yet to learn this. And this wasn't the kingdom that they thought that they were signing up for. Well, the story continues, and what Jesus teaches them next is, my kingdom is about trust in your brokenness, not external performance or bravado. Look with me at verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, 
the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. If I were to say, you, listen to me. You don't know whether I'm talking to you, Dave Monez, or you, all of you, do you? Because in English, the word you can be both singular, Dave Monez, and plural, the whole church. Why does this matter? Now, south, they say you all, right? That's you plural, but that's kind of a colloquialism. Why does that matter? In this verse, Peter, uh, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you and to sift you like wheat. And the you there, which you can see in the Greek language, which you don't see in the English language, is plural. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you all and to sift you all like wheat. It's going to get really gnarly around here, Jesus says. You're about to enter into a battle against spiritual forces of darkness, and you don't even recognize how precarious your situation is. You guys think you're strong, but you're not. You're in trouble, and you don't even realize it. And how does Peter respond? Not me, Lord. (laughs) I'll never let you down. He's all bravado, right? I'm not like these other turkeys. I can't speak for them. They're a little less than me. I'm not like them. I'm never going to fail you. I'm ready to go to jail for you. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus looked at Peter in all earnestness, and perhaps he had a tear in his eye, No, Peter. You're going to deny me three times. He doesn't believe it. The same spirit that Peter has, I would never let you down, Lord, can still exist in the hearts of people today. Sometimes we get to believing our own press and thinking God is most happy with us because we are the faithful ones. I'm not like the rest of these lackeys. I'm a faithful Christian. God should love me more because I'm such a good Christian. I'm trying so hard for Jesus that He must accept me What makes God happy about me is how hard I'm trying for Him. I'm different from the others. I'm made of something better. I don't struggle with that. I don't do that. You would never catch me doing something like that, saying something like that, dressing like that at church. I'm one of the better Christians. That's what Peter thought. And we can slip into that same mode. I would never deny you, Lord. Jesus says, yes, you will. You're just like the others. 
Because Jesus' kingdom is never about pride and superiority. There are no upper shelf Christians. We're all Jesus deniers and we're all Jesus betrayers. And the only true way to approach the Savior, Messiah, is as a person who needs to be saved, not as a good person who needs a little fix or a great person that's not going to let him down. Jesus' kingdom is not about having enough spiritual bravado that makes you better than other people. It's knowing that you're a broken, sinful person who needs His mercy, needs His grace, who without help, I can do nothing. Those who enter the kingdom of Jesus are those who have been broken and those who humble themselves, not those who think Jesus owes them something or should be congratulating them to have them in His kingdom. On the last night that Peter and the disciples spent with Jesus, they had no idea what they'd signed up for. They had no idea. And Jesus tried to explain it to them. My kingdom is about my sacrifice, not success. My kingdom is about humble service, not outward ambition or authority. And my kingdom is about trusting me in your brokenness, not outward performance and bravado. Just as I wrap up, let me remind you about the Let's Connect card that's found in the seat in front of you. If you're a first-time guest, I'd love to hear from you and get to know you, or a second-time guest or an all-the-time guest. And each of you could put in that section where it says sermon response, what aspect of the kingdom of God is most challenging for you? Sacrifice, humble service, trusting in brokenness, Which one could I pray for you this week? And just put it in the offering plate or give it to somebody uh, with a name tag in the lobby. Look with me at verse 31 and 32. Jesus told Peter, he goes, Simon, Simon, using his Jewish name, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Many of you know the rest of the story. Peter would deny Jesus and then Jesus would restore Peter. And we're going to be looking at that. But I want you to notice in particular why Peter even survived this whole ordeal. Because Jesus said to him, I prayed for you. I prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. Peter thought he was so strong He had no idea how far he would fall, how fast he would fall. No idea. And when he did, he was devastated. But the reason why he made it was because Jesus prayed for him. 
He wasn't this great man of faith. He was a complete failure. When things really got hard, he blew it. But Jesus had prayed for him. His servant Messiah had prayed for him. Jesus stepped in to rescue Peter when he didn't even think he needed rescuing. Those of you listening today, both here or online, don't you see that in order to have a true relationship with God, to have a real relationship with Jesus, to be part of the true kingdom of God, Jesus has to step in and rescue you. You'll never make it on your own. You made the same broken stuff as Peter and all his other disciples. You can't take the heat. Jesus has to rescue you. Come to the true Messiah of the world. Not the Messiah who acts like he's better than the rest, who thinks all the people in the world exist to serve him. The Messiah who sacrificed himself, who served his people, who heals the broken, who turned to him. Right where you are, right now, confess your wrongs to him. Admit that you are helpless. Ask him to come into your life and rescue you into his kingdom. He will not say no to the broken hearts who need him.